Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, on Friday, April 29th, Ireland celebrated National Workplace Wellbeing Day, an event dedicated to promoting the idea of a well balanced working environment. This week, I'll be joined by three experts to discuss how to prevent stress and create a positive working culture in which individuals and organisations can thrive. So, what kind of a health and wellness week? did I have? Well, I actually let a pillar of health fall this week and I've been feeling the effects of it. It was a busy weekend from my birthday last Thursday to a night out on Friday, late night with friends Saturday. We brought the kids then in our genius move to Ed Sheeran on Sunday night on the tail end of the Easter holidays when we were all knackered and great and all though it was. I have not slept well all week and haven't felt good because of it. But look, it was a gorgeous weekend and my cup was filled. And I think that's why I didn't sleep well on Monday or Tuesday either, because I was so buzzed up from a brilliant weekend. But yes, a pillar of health fell. But you know what? It was all worth it. I actually do better in spring and summer. The impetus to be out and about is so much bigger and your form is lighter when the sun is shining and the weather is warm. So hanging out with my friends, eating pizza, laughing over margaritas. I mean, that is the joy that is such an integral part of health and wellness. So I'll swap that for sleep once in a while. And I'd have to say, I loved Ed Sheeran. To be honest, I got the tickets for the kids. We brought my son to Phoenix Park to see him four years ago because he loved singing along to him on the radio. And I wanted to bring my daughter into the fold. Now she's old enough. Um, And... Look, he's a good one, isn't it? Isn't he? It's like a kind of a, a sing song. There's plenty for everyone. Um, and I don't think a sing song on the side happens often enough at parties for this generation. But that's another story for another day. But there was a moment about halfway into the gig that I recognised the shift in consciousness when it comes to the pandemic. I hadn't even thought of any danger in such a big crowd. And I really feel the benefit of it. I mean, cut to two years ago when we would have seen this as a super spreader event. All this was was just a group of people enjoying themselves, swaying to music, singing along and flashing their phones. And even my daughter was also exhausted. We've all been dropping sleep this week. We left at 10 and I was surprised at how much I was dragging myself away. I also hosted some panels for Leia Healthcare for Workplace Wellbeing and was joined by a host of experts on fitness, nutrition, mental health, style and financial freedom. And I'd have to say how heartening it is that the more of these events that I do with such a range of different people, the health message is definitely changing. It's coming from a place of positivity and making small changes in your life that will impact how you feel. It's amazing to witness and I'm loving being a part of it. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Brian Crook is a well-being educator, speaker and advisor, supporting organisations to promote and sustain well-being within their workplaces. He's the founder of Workplace Wellbeing Ireland and the Workwell Institute and is responsible for the design and delivery of the postgraduate certificate in workplace wellness in Trinity College Dublin. And he's also the host of the Work Well podcast. I can't think of a guest best suited to discuss workplace well-being than you, Brian. You're very welcome. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for the invitation. How did you get into all of this? 
So I was in the corporate world for 10 years. I'm a recovering management consultant. I, uh, I was, had a real passion for health and well-being at the time. You know, I was working in a professional services company. Uh, it was you know, demands, deadlines, challenges, kind of typical work environment. And I just found it very hard to maintain a healthy kind of work-life balance. And, and, I was, and I was trying really hard. So I just felt, you know, it cannot be, it's not supposed to be like this. You know, we spend so much time at work. So, you know, I was doing my own bits and pieces. I was re-educating myself at night. I was into physical well-being at the time. I became a gym instructor, personal trainer. I did a sports nutrition diploma as well. And I started introducing these kind of ideas into my own workplace. You know, I started the five-a-side football, lunchtime walking groups, running groups, uh, lunch and learns as well. But, you know, I was kind of seeing like there's a lot more to uh, workplace health promotion than physical activity. And for one thing, a lot of my colleagues couldn't even attend some of the things I was organizing. They didn't have time. So I researched a lot at night. I joined an organization called Wellcoa, who do a lot, a lot of great work in this area, the Wellness Council of America. And you know, rather than reinvent the wheel, they're 30 years in, in operation. So I, I did all their certifications. It was a lot broader, a lot more holistic approach to workplace health promotion. So I started writing about that and I set up a blog. I called it Office Worker Health. Talked about all the different workplaces I'd been in and how I was trying to maintain a healthy work-life balance. And lo and behold, I was offered voluntary redundancy. I, I did a postgrad in entrepreneurship and innovation. And I, you know, I tried to turn my, my blog into a business. And, you know, it, it kind of worked to a certain extent. You know, I was delivering services to companies, if you like, but they were very much one-off ad hoc deliveries. And I was doing a very good job. But then that organization would move on to the, you know, the next person or the next speaker or the next uh, random act of wellness that I, that I would call it at the time. So it wasn't sustainable for me as a, a small business owner, but it also there was there was no real health benefits to the organization or to the individuals within that organization. So from conversations I was having, I knew there was so much good work going on in some organizations, but it just wasn't being shared. So I created a forum, I called it, I just called it Workplace Wellbeing Ireland. I called it, like a, we had a meetup group. 100 people came to the first event in 2018. So, you know, I knew I was onto something there. And it was really the people, the one or two people within companies that were kind of leading the way or trying to develop some kind of wellbeing initiative or program. So it can be quite an isolating role. So I just gave them a forum to come together and to share and to learn from each other. So it's expanded from there and we've got over 4,000 members now and we share a lot. There's the podcast, as you mentioned, there's the online learning hub, the Institute, but I mean, it's the webinars, it's the kind of the get togethers. That's the real, where the real value is, where people get to meet other people that are doing similar things. And what is it at its essence? What is workplace well-being? So workplace well-being or, or workplace health promotion is any activity or any organizational policy that is designed to support kind of healthy behaviors or over time kind of improve health outcomes. So it could be anything from, you know, a simple step challenge all the way up to, let's say, a flexible working policy, a parental leave policy, something like that. And it's become a real buzzword now. Mm-hmm. You just hear it being offered. Is it only in the corporate world or can it work in any workplace? It can absolutely can work in any in any workplace. Yeah, it's a barrier to entry sometimes. I think for some people or smaller companies is they think they need a big budget first of all to get started. A lot more important than budget is time, 
and I know time time is money but uh, if you have a person or a couple of people who are willing to dedicate a little bit of time to getting something off the ground that is the most valuable uh, resource you can have in a workplace and it might start with the step challenge it might start with something along the lines of physical activity but maybe then you, you can learn from that you know you can do a very simple survey like did that work was that useful should we do something similar where are the other needs and wants in our organization and grow it from there so having uh, you know, really kind of passionate people that are willing to spend a little bit of time to get this off the ground that's the most important aspect and yes it can work for, uh, for any organization and it's mutually beneficial, isn't it? Because it's a, it, it's a benefit to the employee because they're getting a little bit more health and wellness into their day. And as you say, we spend so much of our time in work. But then from an employer point of view, they're getting stronger, healthier, happier employees because we're hearing so much now about the great resignation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it also feeds into retention. So it does make economic sense. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a happy and healthy employee is without a doubt a more productive employee they're also a more loyal employee they're more likely to tell their friends ab- about that particular workplace you know i it's you're right to say though it's 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 an employee and the employer have a role in fact the world health organization their definition of a healthy workplace is the collaboration between employees and employers on a continuing a continuing improvement process to develop a sustainable and healthy workplace how do you make sure it's a policy, a, a workplace well-being policy that's inclusive for all? Because not everybody wants to do a physical challenge or can do a physical challenge or likes the focus on weight loss or, or fitness mm-hmm. and doesn't want that encroaching into their their working day. Likewise, you get a real eye roll when you talk about wellness and meditation and mindfulness and mm-hmm. yoga and, you know, you can sense a resistance in people and and I get it and, and people will say if you want to do that find it in your own time why is that happening in work yeah great question I think well first of all I would say a well-being intervention you know it doesn't have to be something that takes up time you know that people have to go to or sign up to or get involved with it could actually be something that gives people time back as well uh, but that's why I think it's so important for organizations to try and create a shared ownership for well-being right across the organization. So this is something we speak about in, in, in Workplace Wellbeing Ireland. Can you create a shared ownership for well-being across the organization? Because as we mentioned, it's chances are it's one or you know a, a group of people in a small team uh, trying to create or develop these programs and, and roll them out and communicate them. And, and that's that's challenging, first of all. But number two, it can be seen as well, here we go, here's just another HR initiative or another uh, you know, leadership initiative designed to, to bring some more productivity out of us. But if you can create something like a network or a team of wellbeing champions where all the different areas of your organization are represented, different role types, that's really important, uh, different backgrounds, have you got parents, non-parents represented, have you got shift workers, how is your organization kind of broken down and are you hearing from all the different voices uh, within that organization so the more inclusive your well-being kind of network or team is the better and you know you're working they're the team that are actually working with you to develop the program so they're inputting into the program they're participating they're advocates as well they're feeding back as well on what's working and what's not and what people on the ground on their teams are looking for how is this going to work with 
the changes that have happened over the last couple of years and the proliferation of remote working and, and more flexible working? Yeah, it's it's an added challenge. But I mean, if you follow like so the eight step framework that I promote, like the very f- the first three steps are all people based. So it's almost kind of pandemic proof, if you like. You're listening to your people. Number one is the leadership team and growing their commitment. Number two is that uh, growing network of well-being champions that are spread throughout the organization. And number three then is gathering meaningful data. So listening to the needs and wants of your people. So if you are listening and taking action on what they're saying, you know, the remote worker is not going to want a gym at head office. Uh, this the sales manager down in Cork isn't going to want it, you know, a gym or whatever classes you're organizing in the Dublin office. So it's just understanding this particular needs and wants of your organization, trying to be as inclusive as possible and targeting targeting the majority as opposed to the minority. You're never going to please all the people all the time. But if you can target the majority in most cases, you know, I think you'll uh, you'll significantly increase the chances of your program being a success. So. An employee then, how should we feel at work? How does an employee who is well feel? Well, I suppose you'd have to ask that particular employee that because uh, I think well-being, we define what workplace well-being is. But something I always do, a nice exercise to do is with a group, with a workshop is, well, what does well-being mean to you? And you can look, you can look at the definition uh, on Google if you like. But a really nice exercise to do is what does well-being mean to you as as a team of people or as a group of people? And one for the individual, it's a nice little exercise to do just to maybe sketch out a couple of words or a sentence or two. But then when you put that together from a team perspective, all of a sudden now you have you know this group and you you can you know you can work you can workshop it a, a bit more if you like. But you have a kind of a foundation for what well-being means to us as a team at X company. So no one else is telling us what it means. This is what we mean. This is what it means to us uh, at this company. And we're going to base all our well-being programming and initiatives off this foundation now. And then the individual, of course, will have their own uh, understanding then as well. Yeah. And I think one of the top values is being heard, isn't it? And like you said, parents, non-parents, depending on what you need, flexible, Mm non-flexible, it's being heard, I think, is really important in the workplace. What about meaning and purpose then? Because that's something that comes up time and time again in the the wellness Mm -hmm. discussion and how important that is to our sense of of well-being. And a lot of people get that from their job. If it was a a dream of theirs to work in a certain career or perhaps it's a a caring job and it it gives them a lot Mm -hmm. of satisfaction. And then others just don't really have that opportunity. I know here at Bower Media, there's a corporate social responsibility team where people can come and be given an opportunity to give back and suggest how that's done and, and, and it's kind of becomes a company-wide initiative. I suppose there are some of the policies you can use mm-hmm. to give people meaning and purpose. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's sometimes an overlooked area in workplace health promotion, uh, but community involvement and community engagement is one of the four quadrants of the of the World Health World Health Organization uh, model workplace health model. The others being the physical environment, the psychosocial environment, and then personal health resources. But if if you have kind of you, you might be have communities within your organization, maybe kind of DNI, LGBT, or you know women at work, something like that. But also, uh, and that can give people a real purpose. But then also. Uh, are you doing any work with the external communities as well? So as you touched on, maybe ESG, kind of CSR work, maybe charity partnerships, maybe some local businesses you're working with. Maybe the work itself 
is actually kind of has a real purpose and a meaning behind it. But absolutely, that's a real kind of one of the great motivator for people at work is, is there a real purpose uh, for the work that they're doing? And Daniel Pink talks about that in, in Drive. Do you have what's a, What's one of the real motivators? What's the purpose for what you're doing? Is there a bit of box ticking going on here? You're working with a lot of different companies and and, and, and you, you feel this. These things get discussed and they're like, we mm-hmm. should be seen to be doing something. Or are you seeing um, a real shift in how we look at the, the workplace and we view health? There's lots of box ticking going on. There, there really is. Um, but there's probably less than there was in the past. I think we're we're all educating ourselves in this area. I mean, even going back a few years, I think a lot of people and companies might have thought if you have a really good EAP program, employee assistance program, you know, that that's it. We're done now. We're covered in terms of, of mental health and, and workplace well-being. And the last couple of years, you know, mental health first aid has grown. And that's a fantastic program, uh, kind of an awareness training program for colleagues. But again, I, I hear this attitude in companies. This great. We have an EAP. We have mental health first aiders. You know, we're done. Uh, with mental health first aid, it's fantastic. We're done. I say, well, no, you're not done. You're you're treating the issues. Certainly, that issues that already arise with an EAP. You're managing issues that are already there with mental health first aid. But you're doing very little to tackle uh, to, the preventative to do any preventative work. What are the primary interventions you can look at to prevent the issues before they actually arise? So there's still huge potential there for workplaces. And this is what I try and do is to move them towards the primary interventions to try and really help prevent the issues arising in the first place. And as you said, workplace well-being is for any workplace. It's not just corporates, but it seems that that's the real in. That's the one where you can at least meet a HR manager, meet somebody with a budget and tailor it from there. Plus, I suppose you've a lot of people who are going to be in the one place between nine and five and you can kind of schedule it that way. And I wanted to ask you about the healthcare workers, because mm-hmm. so many of them are in caring roles, but they are close to burnout. Yeah. I was working here on News Talk on the bank holiday that was set up to say thank you to the frontline workers. And I had a panel on of frontline workers, all of them going to work and none of them having the day off because of still COVID absences and all of them close to burnout, not just because of what they've been through over the last two years. Is there a shift there? Are you seeing any inroads with any of our, our healthcare providers that they're interested in helping their staff out in this way? It's unfortunately, it's all too often that the people that are in the healthcare roles or in you know workplace health promotion roles actually neglect their own well-being or their employer is ne- neglecting, not providing any supports for them. I think there is there is a focus on it now. Uh, is enough being done? Probably not. Not yet, anyway. Um, but I mean, healthcare workers are just are another cohort of employee that really need. We need to hear their voices and understand what will work for them. I guess the best people to solution this or to understand what can we like putting on a resilience workshop uh, when you're already probably close to burnout probably isn't going to help. So I would love to sit down with them and understand well what are the aspects of your role that you know won't really annoy you. Uh, one that we can maybe can look at and can fix and can we in some way can we uh, mitigate these hazards can we can we eliminate them fantastic if we can't can we mitigate or can we substitute in some way to uh, to 
so that the, the burnout doesn't happen in the first place. Now it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, but it's those initial conversations you're going to understand. Well, what's the what's the challenge, and what are the potential solutions? Well, Brian, you're doing your best to spread the message of workplace wellbeing. Where can people find you? Thanks so much, Claire. Uh, if people go to workwellireland.ie, people are welcome to join the community. It's uh, simple. It's just joining the, the kind of the weekly newsletter. You get a weekly newsletter from uh, Workplace Wellbeing Ireland. And then, uh, yeah, we'll take it from there. Brian Crook, thank you so much for coming on. A real pleasure. Thank you, Claire. Vlad Rifkin is an associate professor in organisational behaviour and work psychology whose research focuses on burnout, stress and other demands that people experience at work, as well as what organisations can do to protect employee well-being and maintain their effectiveness. Other recent research projects include studies on the impact of commuting on employee well-being, the role of willpower in overcoming the negative effects of a bad night's sleep and how smartphone use during non-work time impacts on sleep quality. Today he's here to discuss presenteeism and how it's been labelled the £800 gorilla. Vlad, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Anyone with a smartphone is delighted you're not on to talk about that because nobody wants to hear that the results of that survey, do they? Indeed, indeed. I think the smartphone research, unfortunately, it came a little bit late. It came at a time when when everybody was using their smartphone already. So I think uh, our discipline missed a little bit the mark there. Yeah, and using them as an alarm clock. So it's beside the bed. It's first thing in the morning. It's last thing at night. And so ends the danger. Talk to us a little bit then about presenteeism. What, What exactly is it? Yes, so presentism in essence is uh, a behavior uh, and it is essentially attending work when people feel unwell. And I mean, previous research has looked at presentism as more an attendance behavior where you have to physically attend work to engage in presentism. So for example, you have a flu and then go to work despite having a flu, which uh, with Corona fortunately doesn't happen that often anymore. Uh, but newer research and, and also our research on presentism focuses on it uh, as an atten- attendance behavior when working from home. And, and what's the impact of it? So essentially, presentism has quite a considerable impact on both employees and organizations. Uh, for employees, what previous re- research has shown is that presentism leads to longer uh, recuperation or recovery time. So going to work when ill basically can prolong your illness, Uh, but also it leads to reduced work performance because people can't focus that well on their work. On the other hand, this impacts, of course, organizations because when we are ill, we can't perform uh, to the 100 or to our full capacity, I would say. Uh, And this can be particularly an issue uh, in jobs where um, sort of uh, performance is is crucial or being at the top level of performance is crucial. So imagine your surgeon having a running nose during the surgery. Would you be comfortable to sort of lying on that table? Hmm. Well, thankfully, I wouldn't know what was happening, but... (laughs) You're right. I suppose the pandemic and coronavirus has really put to the forefront of our mind. If you're not well, you shouldn't come in, particularly if it's something that's contagious because you're only going to infect the rest of the people that you work with. But it also comes down to performance, as you said. But there's this assumption that if you ring and say you're sick, 
people think you're having, in inverted commas, a, a duvet day and just can't be bothered working. How can we shift the culture to, to know that people are just being honest and will only work when they can work to the best of their ability? I think, I think that's a very good question. And uh, essentially, um, as, as we see it, our research contributes to establishing that culture because what it shows in essence is that uh, engaging in work where you are unwell has downstream costs for your performance on the next day. So while you may think that uh, sort of calling in at work and saying, okay, or not calling in at work and continuing working while you're feeling unwell may be a good idea. It will basically come back to you on the next day. Uh, and therefore, I think our research contributes to establishing a culture uh, where both employees and organizations should consider uh, whether they should engage in presentism or rather take some rest and then regain their full performance on the next day. But if we're talking about workplace well-being, I mentioned the duvet day there. I mean, how unwell do you have to, to feel? Does it have to be something that could get a, a medical cert for that's often required in the workplace? Or can it be enough to say, I just don't feel like it today? Uh I, I think the, it's it's difficult to to sort of put clear boundaries. Uh, my suggestion would be to actually leave it to employees to assess their own health and well-being, and especially with re- remote workers, uh, I think giving people the flexibility to sort of take some rest during the day to cure off their complaints, and then. Uh, get back to work when they feel better, maybe the better option than trying to work through it. Where did the reference to the £800 gorilla come from? Uh, So the reference uh, to the £800 gorilla uh, essentially came from the seminal research on presenteeism. Uh, And the idea behind this picture is essentially is that we or that organizations tend to overlook this 800 pound gorilla. So most organizations and we're working with a lot of companies in the area of health and well-being to assess people's health and well-being to promote policies to improve uh, mental health and well-being. And what organizations predominantly focus on is absenteeism. So essentially the opposite of presenteeism being that uh, when they are ill, people do not attend work. And then organizations think that the biggest sort of productivity costs are associated with absenteeism. And what the presenteeism research actually shows is that Probably presentism uh, is a much bigger problem than absenteeism because people can make errors, which are very costly. People are not at their peak performance, as we discussed, when they uh, engage in presentism. Uh, And this basically translates to costs for organizations, which can be much higher than those of not attending work. Does the type of work make a difference? I mean, I think if it's automation based work, people think, if I take a day off, the workload will be bigger the next day, but the work will get done. Whereas it's if it's something that needs you in person, whether it's hospitality or a caring role, people are probably less likely to call in sick because they know they really will be letting somebody down. Yeah, I think I think that's that's one one of the bigger challenges that I agree sometimes attending work while feeling unwell. 
uh, sort of may seem like the better option because, for example, uh, if there are no replacements, uh, but but eventually this may also lead for these people to stay ill for longer times or to not cure off their illness. Or uh, if we talk about COVID, infect other people. Uh, and I think their organizations have to consider what's what's the better option. And I understand, of course, that they are staffing shortages and uh, there may not always be an opportunity to replace people. Uh, but what I would recommend is if people are not feeling well, it's better to sort of not work rather than to work. Uh, there is, however, uh, an exception to that rule, and, and this applies to the type of work. So uh, if people decide to engage in work when they are ill, they should engage in tasks that they find most enjoyable. Uh, and this essentially links to what we found in our study, because what we found is that, especially when working from home, presenting depletes one's uh, mental resources, mental energy, and this is more prevalent when people complete tasks that they don't inherently enjoy when they're engaging in presenteeism. Do you think we know how to rest and recuperate when we're unwell? I mean, I myself had coronavirus and isolated in my room and continued to, to work. It's very hard to do nothing in this always-on culture, isn't it? Uh, I think uh, it depends a little bit. I think Corona is a, is a nice example here because for some people, coronavirus tends to have very severe health implications. For others, um, they don't feel any implications at all or very minor implications. And I think this is uh, where, where the employees themselves should decide how well they feel uh, in terms of being able to work. And that's why our research used uh, or, or assessed employees' self-perceptions of illness rather than objective illness. Uh, but on the other hand, I very much agree with you that it's very difficult to turn off. Uh, and interestingly, and, and to some degree related to this piece of research, uh, my colleagues and I are currently looking at boundary creation behaviors because one thing which emerged during uh, the remote work or the emergence of remote work uh, associated with the pandemic is that the boundaries between work and non-work time are much more fluent. So if you work from home, you wake up, you go to your computer, you're already at work. So you don't have a commute, which allows you to transition from, non -to, uh, from your home state to your work state. Uh, and I mean, essentially, uh, for some people, it's very, very difficult to draw these boundaries, especially when we are working from home. So what we are currently exploring is how can people draw these boundaries? Yeah. And another thing I hope we keep is this culture of, of honesty. I think during the pandemic, working from home, though it was a knee jerk, panicked time, people were able to say, I'm feeling stressed. I'm going to go for a walk at lunchtime. And everybody on the team was like, you you do that. Or a parent might say, I've got to go and collect my kids. So I'll be a bit late to the Zoom meeting, but I'll be there. And everyone was like, you do what you need to do. And I, I think there should be a little more openness and honesty for people to say, I'm not feeling well today. I'm not going to be in for work. And for that to be trusted um, and upheld. 
Thank you so much for coming on. Vlad Rivkin, Associate Professor in Organisational Behaviour and Work Psychology. Thank you. Neve Brady is a productivity coach passionate about improving well-being at work. She began searching for a better workday because after three separate burnouts, she took a step back, assessed her work life and planned out how to manage her workday better. She became so passionate about the changes and the positive impact that had on her life that she began sharing what she'd learned. This led to the creation of the Better Workday programme and her book Remote Working Essentials in 2020. And Neve joins me now. Hello. Hello, Neve. How are you? I'm great, Claire. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell me a little bit about your life before. What led to, to three burnouts? Okay, so I am a self-confessed functioning workaholic. So I started work at the age of 11 in the family business and I was always very career oriented. And like probably many people listening, I would have always aimed for jobs that I wasn't qualified for. I was always chasing my way up the ladder, trying to skip a few steps, which meant that I was always probably working too much, taking on too much and not looking after myself. So I would fall into what I call the burnout cycle. So I would overwork and succeed at what I wanted to do, burn myself out and then repeat the whole thing. Um, But like you said in the intro there, after a while, that became something that just wasn't going to be sustainable, Um, especially when I saw other people falling into the same trap. So I decided to slowly make a practical change. And uh, I say uh, I'm a recovering workaholic because, of course, you know, we can always slip into bad old habits. Right. So, yeah. And I think that's what's so important to point out. I mean, it's not like work goes away or stresses go away, but it's about changing your attitude and your your mindset. Um, And what was different about the third burnout? What was the moment where you said no more? This has to change. I think the difference was that I started to become more of a role model and other people were asking me for advice and they wanted to be like me. And that, Claire, was very scary because to your point, the work will never be done. There will always be stresses. There will always be, you know, panics and emergencies at work. And I really couldn't have people thinking that the way I was working was the way to handle it. Uh, So as much as I'd like to pretend it was all about me, and I was willing to change myself. It wasn't. It was actually when I saw other people falling into the same trap while I was going through that myself. And the way we work has really changed. I know a lot of positives came from the pandemic and people are getting a bit more flexibility and working from home and and there are some positives. But even before that, we're living in an always on culture. So people are beginning to answer emails at 11 o'clock at night and, you know, pick up their phone first thing. It's a very different way of working and and I don't think people realise how much it's actually depleting them. Yeah and I was reading through a book actually before we started here and there was a a sentence there that I wouldn't mind sharing that said that we've become the first generation in a thousand generations of human beings who rather than having the need to fill space we have the need to create it and I think that's so relevant when it comes to work because it's bleeding into every area of our lives if we let it because it's so accessible now and the pandemic obviously played its hand in making that more accessible through facilitating remote work and honestly with us just being locked at home and having nothing else to do. Um, But it's why it's more important now as we head into the summertime and we can get out and about more that we start to maybe rebuild those boundaries and get the balance back. So where did you start with rebuilding your workday? Because I think, like I kind of alluded to already, 
we kind of have this idea that people are going to work really hard and then all of a sudden they're going to burn out and then they're going to become a monk in a monastery. And and that is just not <laughs> the reality of the situation. Bills still need to be paid. Life's still hectic. So what were the changes that you made? Yeah, absolutely. And you can't expect these things to happen overnight and you can't expect them to be permanent because there will always be different challenges that come up. So for me, what I started to do, and this is really simple stuff now, um, scheduling my breaks. So I put my breaks into my calendar as a recurring event and actually started taking them. And the second thing that I started to do was to enforce better boundaries around the start and end of the working day. Now that actually took two parts. So first of all, I had to set my end time. But the second thing, Claire, that I found really helpful, and I, I'm doing it now myself again, actually, um, because I fell into bad habits again over the last two years myself, is I started making plans after work so that I had a reason to stick to my boundaries. You know, so I started planning to meet somebody for a walk or, you know, go for dinner or go to exercise or whatever. And that was the first step. So it was around making sure that I was building in time for rest into the day. And the second thing then was to acknowledge that the work will never be done and to put in a simple way to manage my workload day to day and week to week to make sure that I was at least covering the most important stuff so that I wasn't worrying about that at night you know, and laying awake in bed, freshing over whether or not I got everything done. And the breaks are really important because people are are forgetting how important that really is. Eating lunch at the desk, not bothering to to take a break. Um, And as you said, just uh, forgetting when to finish work and bleeding it it into the evening. What sort of impact does that have on our on our sense of well-being? Yeah, so listen, I'm I'm the person who eats, and I'm not going to lie, a half a packet of chocolate digestives for my lunch on the day I forget to plan it, right? So we can all fall into the trap, Claire. And I I think it's something that we have to be kind to ourselves about. But if you don't take breaks, and I'm going to speak from personal experience here, I find I get very tired. Your eyes get very tired, don't they? From staring at that screen, your energy levels drop. When you finally close the laptop, you haven't given yourself a chance to disconnect so your mind continues to stay in work even though you might be at the kitchen table you don't give yourself a chance to recover and I think the biggest impact is you don't give yourself a chance to enjoy life outside of work right so that could be relaxing or exercising or spending time with people and that impacts your well-being you know physically mentally and emotionally. Do you think there's enough of a culture out there for people to be able to speak to their bosses regardless of where they work in in retail, in healthcare, or in the corporate world to say, I'm not coping, the workload is too much. I mean, that just sounds like a a red flag for someone that's on the DOS. Yeah, and for a long time, I think that's how it was interpreted. And unfortunately, I would say that the some of the reports that came out over the pandemic didn't help. You know, the ones that said that employees were far more productive and, you know, every, everyone was doing fantastic working from home not considering maybe the downside. But on the plus side, I do see that it's becoming more of a conversation. Um, Well-being at work reports are now including workload as a consideration and as something to talk about. And I know myself, companies have now been working with me to do workload management training with their teams and to actually talk about reviewing and managing the workload. And the fact that they're doing that now is a positive sign. You know, it's not perfect, but it's definitely moving in the right direction. Yeah, because I always think there's this assumption 
that you never really move on from from school, you know, that you're sort of seen as a, a as a student body, even in the workplace often, that there's an assumption that you're always going to be trying to get out of your work, whereas so many people are so passionate about what they do that they want to do it to the best of their ability. So actually raising your hand and saying this workload is too much is actually a very positive thing to say because you want to be doing quality work and you don't want to be frazzled or burnt out. Absolutely. And you're speaking my language now because that's what I recommend. So when you're doing regular workload reviews and even better if you do it as a team and everybody just lists out, look, this is what's on my plate. This is how much time I'm taking doing the work and this is how much we've left to do. And if you're really open, then people start saying, why are you still doing that? That's no longer important. That thing at the end of your list is actually way more important now. And and suddenly people start to have conversations and you all get back on the same page and everybody feels like their time is more worthwhile. And, you know, they're not worried about, about what they're not doing. So I think workload reviews, even in small teams, is really, really good because, you know, the managers are more confident that their team are moving their direction. The team are happier with how they're spending their time. And to your point, people generally want to do a good job, you know. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I mean, that's the theory behind it. And people might be listening to this and really buzzed up and saying, oh, yes, I'm going to really take control of all of this. And then the reality of, of work sets in and the emails are coming and the deadlines are there. Um, and it, it can be hard to put it into practice. So so what's your advice to people? Where do you start? You are so right, first of all. And we have to acknowledge that you can't pretend it's going to be, as I said already, a magic fix. So what I usually recommend people start with is a little 20 minute routine, um, if you don't mind me sharing it. So the first is you spend five minutes in the morning answering up to five minutes, answering the question, if I do nothing else today, I will. So that's you just picking out the single most important job you have to do today. And if it's appropriate, you might share that with your manager, you know, just drop them a message and say, FYI, this is my priority for today. And what that does is it just helps you begin to prioritize your workload, you know, the single most important thing. And then the second part of the day is the last 15 minutes before you leave work that you just reflect on what went well during the day, what you achieved and what you'll do differently tomorrow. And actually studies have shown that that 15 minutes if you do it regularly, it will increase your productivity by 25%. But it also is that space in between work and home that allows you to disconnect and wind down for the day. So it has so many benefits. Yeah. So if people just start with that, that's a good start. That is so important. And then obviously you gave the tips of the boundaries and the breaks yeah. and the, the importance of that. And I hosted a few panels earlier on in the week about workplace well-being and there had people there on financial wellness, um, physical health, mental health, um, even feeling yourself with your style. There was a nutritionist there, but they were all talking about planning and just taking a bit of time. And we have this idea in our head that if we meal plan, if we sit down on a Sunday and schedule out, that that is a really regimented and boring way to live our life. But actually, you're minimising the stress elsewhere. You're just going to feel the stress at a different time. So as you're saying, you're only bringing in this 20 minutes um, and the benefits will far outweigh not doing it because you're already stressing by getting out of bed and just getting straight into it and not knowing when you really finish and never feeling like you've you've achieved enough. Yeah, absolutely. And like these 20 minutes, the five minutes in the morning could be when you're brushing your teeth. 
You know what I mean? The 15 minutes could be when you're starting to wrap up yourself. So it doesn't have to be an extra thing. So you can do, um, I think they call it habit stacking. You know, so you do it on top of something that you're already doing. And to your point around the planning, I think one of the best things about planning is that it makes you aware of what you want to do and how much you're planning to take on. So it's sometimes it's not about the plan itself, but about the process of it. And actually thinking through, okay, what do I want to try and do today or this week? And how am I actually going to get that done? Yeah. And look, the actual the actuality of it might change day to day and that's okay. It's all about the effort and the intention. Yeah, and I think there's no greater joy than crossing something off the list. Sometimes when it's buzzing oh. around in your head, it feels huge. You write it down, it's actually four or five things that are doable. And the joy of crossing them off as they're done is unreal. Neve. How do you work now? I mean, I'm sure, as you say, you slip up every now and then and lunch is a packet of biscuits, which is grand once in a while. But you mind yourself now. I mean, you're running your own business, so I'm sure you could work 24-7 if you let yourself. Oh, I absolutely could. And switching to being self-employed is probably a whole other conversation we could have in terms of well-being and work habits. But I mind myself now by, I suppose, doing stuff like this so that I'm forced to practice what I preach. And that's just keeping it top of mind for myself. My breaks are still planned in, but um, I also, when I work with people, so I, I work with companies mainly now and I've started doing online courses so people can access me without me having to multiply myself by 100. Yeah. And that helps me continue to have my own balance, you know, so it's just a, it's just a different way of thinking about how you work. And Neve, how can people find you? So you can find me in all the usual haunts on Instagram and LinkedIn, but the best place is to find me at abetterworkday.com Neve Brady thank you so much for coming on Thanks Claire it was lovely So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks to you for listening I will see you next week Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.